0: This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 rrfm FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Nick Fike. Nick is former editor of the Monthly magazine, and he joined me to delve into the latest in federal politics. This week, the focus was naturally on all the developments and questions that are arising from former Prime Minister Scott Morrison's ministerial power grab. Having secretly appointed himself as Minister for Health, Minister for Industry, Science, Energy and Resources, Treasurer, Minister for Home Affairs and Minister for Finance, Nick reflects on the complicity of those who knew, as well as the role of the Governor-General in all of this, the public servants, and why there is such a big problem with what's happened. I'm really, really excited to welcome onto this show someone who I've been following on Twitter for a while and very much appreciating his political takes, and that is Nick Fyke, who is the former editor of The Monthly magazine and no doubt many listening will have read The Monthly and appreciated it as I have for years and years and years. And Nick certainly held that role for quite a while, so um, it's really such an honour to have him on the show and to get a sense of what he thinks about all of the hullabaloo that's been happening in Canberra and that was happening under our noses without us realising during the Morrison government. So I welcome Nick Fike now, who will be chatting all things federal politics, especially former Prime Minister Scott Morrison's secret ministerial portfolios. So hey there, Nick, and thank you very much for coming onto the show for the very first time.
1: Yeah. Hi, hi, Amy. It's great to be on your show. It's a strange time to step out officially of federal politics because it's almost impossible to ignore at the moment.
0: It's actually true. How much time have you had since you finished up at the monthly?
1: Uh, I think I finished up six or seven weeks ago. Um, oh, wow. And I, I really have just been um, enjoying living a sort of civilian life for a little while, taking a, a pause from the deadlines and stuff. Mm. But um, as I said, you know, this this kind of political development's hard to ignore. In fact, I have to say I'm I'm reading it for fun at the moment. I've been following <laughs> the news for fun, like not, not nothing to do with anything professional. It's just because seeing the chickens come home to roost in this way is just like how do you turn away from it?
0: No, it is actually like that. My eyes are just glued to my Twitter notifications and I I have like, you know, those live notifications where you follow political yeah. alerts. <laughs> Yeah, to get the breaking news because it's just so exciting and I don't know if anyone else out there is like us but yeah it does feel pretty unprecedented I hate using that word now because it's such a painfully overused word but it's pretty big.
1: Yeah but in a, in a sort of strange way it also is so I mean it's It's only in the particulars is it weird or completely different because it's such a kind of continuation of the patterns of the Morrison government that, that, you know, we were tracking closely. Like I know the mainstream media weren't great at holding him to account, as in they spent a lot of time saying he was this you know, knockabout guy who was in a tough situation, doing his best, etc., etc. And, you know, here he we sort of writing these thousands, thousands of words, articles about the collapse of ministerial standards under the Morrison government, the strange decision-making process, his personal egotism, his secrecy around so many things. Like, there seemed to be no accountability in terms of the way that they would give out grants and the way that they would make decisions so the way this story broke it was sort of only in the specifics that it felt completely you know unprecedented like you say but um it was kind of consistent with his character and also consistent in the way that the rest of the party and other people around him were complicit I mean the. Do you, do you sort of agree
0: mm-hmm. with that
1: sort of complicity angle? I, mean, I I'm sort of a, a little bit um, – I, I was watching it at the start and thinking this is not all just about Morrison. Of course he was a central character in this drama. But think about all the other people that knew about this all along. I mean the fact that there were two News Corp journalists sitting on this story for two years. But then as we sort of – you know, as, as the news over the past week broke – we sort of started to see, well, firstly, people start to distance themselves from Morrison, but distancing themselves in a way that, you know, it became clear that Barnaby Joyce knew about this stuff in December. Christian Porter knew about it at the time. Who else knew? it, it, It turns out that the initial act in March 2020, at the start of the pandemic, of handing health powers to Morrison was approved by the National Security Committee. So even in March 2020, you had Dutton, Hunt, Michael McCormack, Corman, Marisa Payne, Linda Reynolds. They all knew that they'd handed over the Health Portfolio Administration to Morrison as well, and none of them said anything.
0: Yeah. Well, obviously, Christian Porter, as well as Attorney General, he knew about the first instance because he was the one providing the advice to Scott Morrison, according to the reports that we've got. We've also heard reports that Christian Porter's department didn't really participate in providing that advice. It's yet to be confirmed or demonstrated. But there's just so much secrecy. But then also, as you say, bits and pieces that people absolutely did know. And you would think that if that had happened you might have kind of twigged or you might have started to question what else is happening.
1: Yeah, well, the whole, the, the ambition, the, the reason that they did it in the first place was that they said the health minister under the Biosecurity Act, when a biosecurity emergency is declared, has sort of godlike powers. As in, when they looked through the act, they were a bit freaked out by just how much the health minister could do when a biosecurity emergency was declared. But instead of like, giving those powers judiciously and having some sort of protections, they literally handed it to one person in secret. I mean, it's the strangest sort of approach to decentralising power is to secretly give it all to one person. And then seemingly, no one followed up, as in, not the Governor General, not the Attorney General, no one seemed interested in what you know, what the legalities of these things were, whether there was a time limit on it, as in when the biosecurity emergency lapses. And here we have, you know, the Prime Minister himself sort of saying life's back to normal. You know, that was at the end of 2020 that they were saying. And then again, (laughs) at the end of 2021, life is coming back to normal. Mm. Emergency's over. It's all business. Did no one check whether he still had these emergency powers? Mm. I mean, it's like he saw these emergency powers and thought, I'm gonna get them all for myself. The interesting thing is I think also that, I mean, apart from the fact that then he turned around and gave himself finance without telling anyone, and he gave himself Christian Porter's portfolio of industry, science, energy, or, and innovation, I think, was it? Resources, yeah. So, yeah, and then home affairs and treasury. I mean, we still don't know whether he used these powers so Morrison said that he used them uh, once in terms, of he, once that he can recall. So that PEP 11 project mm. as resources minister is the one that he says, I actually acted on it. Well, you know, I personally don't believe that you would have all of these powers and don't act on them. Why did he want them?
0: Why did he hold them? Why the secrecy? Yeah. Well, the PEP 11 case was very interesting when he was trying to explain it to a pack of journalists at his press conference last Wednesday, because he was essentially saying, you guys should be happy. I made a decision that all the surfers who surf off the coast of New South Wales will be thanking me for, which was to prevent an offshore gas project. So it was really odd that he was defending his decision to basically overturn or Change the outcome because Keith Pitt, the actual original resources minister, seemed to be likely to make a decision in favour of that gas project. Morrison decided against it. There's clearly no COVID emergency involved in that topic or that decision. And yeah. yet, when Morrison had to explain himself as to why supposedly he only used the power once and it was on that project, he didn't seem to have a very good answer. He just kind of said, It was a very different circumstance and you should be thanking me.
1: Yeah. Well I think we'll find that whether overtly or covertly that some of the grants funding that went in as and we found out yesterday or the day before that uh, manufacturing grant money was also was also pork barreled and you know that was through a portfolio that he had more or less taken control of so I think there's going to be a whole bunch of situations where we're when starting to sort through over the next few months whether or not he was Involving himself in the specifics of government as the sort of covert minister or as prime minister, it seems there seems it seems quite unclear in some cases. Apparently, the um, Commonwealth Ombudsman has just uh, told Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet that they should investigate the appointments made by Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet to see if there were if sort of 700 employment positions that were made over the past few years to see if there was anything untoward in any of those appointments, which is an interesting sort of sideline to all of this. Mm. So I think all of which is to say there are still so many things that we just don't know because of the secrecy of the government. I mean, the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet itself is run by Phil Gaichens. He knew about the health portfolio. He was involved in that process. And then he was also involved in talking to Lieutenant General Fruin for the COVID task force. So suddenly you have a situation where the top civil servant, as in not a political position, the head of the department, is liaising with a Lieutenant General on a health matter. And then that general who's heading the, the COVID task force is then saying to the actual health minister, I've got in my instructions from the Prime Minister. So you have essentially this kind of small cabal of people who have appointed themselves working with the head of the public service to make decisions over the head of the health minister during a health crisis. There's a lot to unpack here.
0: Yeah, I did see those reports from a few days ago where it seems that there was tension between Morrison, Lieutenant General John Fruin and health minister, the other health minister, Greg Hunt... (laughs) It's hard to get used to that, because it's clear that Scott Morrison was trying to kind of take charge in some ways with the communication between himself and the Lieutenant General. And it was all also obvious at the time that he really was heavily involved in that. And I guess we expected that the Prime Minister would be because of the gravity of the situation. But it does spring to mind another part of Scott Morrison's press conference, which was really very curious because he essentially was saying, I was responsible for everything. During this pandemic and during the last however many years I was in office, even the Australian people told me how responsible I was for every drop of rain that fell and whether, you know, vaccines made it. You know, he was kind of almost saying it's your fault because you put all this pressure on me to be the single point of accountability, responsibility, and yet we heard so often that's not my job. So I'm very confused.
1: Yeah, yeah. It just goes to show, I mean, it's something that Sean Kelly pointed out in his great book about Morrison, The Game, that Morrison will sort of say or do anything at that particular moment to get himself out of a, you know, rhetorically difficult situation. But the number of times he'd say, that's not my job, that's not my job, I don't hold a hope. But on the other hand, there's just as many examples of him saying, I am the Prime Minister, as in The buck stops. So he's he's a shapeshifter. And I think Mm. that, you know, in these cases, he would use his powers if he wanted to pretend that he didn't have them. I mean, this is where the whole problem resides for me, that you don't have a process. So let's just give Morrison the credit of saying, well, it really was an unprecedented situation. The Biosecurity Act really does give amazing powers to the health minister. There were all sorts of things going on. People had never considered the need to shut borders before. They'd never considered the need to, you know, put lockdowns in place, all of these sorts of things that were happening. You know, we're scared of all of these things. So let's give him the credit and say, well, okay, so you don't want all of this to rest in the hands of one person who's the health minister. At this point, surely you're making decisions in the national interest. And you cut to a couple of months later and they still have these powers they are now squabbling amongst themselves over who's responsible and this is entirely because we never had this public conversation so it was the actual secrecy that led to the confusion and the roles because we never had this conversation about who's responsible for COVID task force who is the actual health minister so i think you could look back and look at those things like the problems with the vaccine rollout and say well There literally were too many cooks in the kitchen, and we didn't know who was responsible. And they themselves didn't seem to know who was responsible. The health ministers suddenly being told by a general that the prime minister is actually the one running the show, and legally that was probably right, not that any of us knew it. But who had sort of uh, carriage of this conversation about the rights and responsibilities? No one seemed to. So, this is where you get this is where the problem is, I think.
0: Yeah, it's the secrecy within Cabinet. So obviously not all of Cabinet knew about these appointments. It's obviously health more than just one or two knew. But in the other appointments to the four other portfolios, clearly very few people knew at all, including some of the ministers who were being shadowed by Scott Morrison in their ministries. And we did hear an explanation from Scott Morrison around why he kept it secret Because obviously that is the question on everyone's tongues at the moment. Why would you keep it secret if it was such a good idea to do this? It was sensible. It was proportionate to the emergency at the time. Why would you not tell Mm. A, your colleagues and B, the general public? I'll read out the quote. Scott Morrison said, I did not want any of my ministers to be going about their daily business any different to what they were doing before. I was concerned that these issues could have been misconstrued and misunderstood and undermine the confidence of ministers in the performance of their duties at that time. And I was very interested in Amanda Vanstone's response to this on Radio National because she obviously was a minister in the Howard government. She said, You know, if you're worried about this being misconstrued or misunderstood, it either means that you're incapable of explaining the situation or that you think your cabinet colleagues are idiots.
1: Yeah. Thought that was a pretty good point. Totally. Either you're in this extraordinary situation which calls for extraordinary measures, in which case you would surely say to the minister, you understand what the what the situation is. We've got these, you know, extraordinary powers in our hands. We need to manage them carefully. I'm just letting you know that this is what's happening. At that point, surely, you know, a minister would say, yep, yeah, fair enough, if there's any sort of reasonable relationship between them. But none of that, none of that, that stuff explains how he could sign himself into Treasury, how he could sign himself into Home Affairs in May 2021. So a full year, more than a year later, he's signing himself into this, these other portfolios without any of them knowing. I mean, it's you can't use the sort of extraordinary measures, COVID excuse in those situations. There's just been no decent explanation yet as to why those ones occurred, let alone why the ministers weren't told. I mean, what what was he doing?
0: And did he use those powers? Although he's publicly, as we've referenced, denying that he's used the powers, he's
1: only said he used them for the resources portfolio. I just don't buy that... that- I mean, that that the other ministers can say, well, we accepted that it was OK. We knew about the health thing. And then Barnaby Joyce, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, I knew about the resources thing. So they knew about two of them. None of them said anything at any point. Like, come on.
0: Well, why don't we address that one, especially the resources one, because it brings up the coalition agreement and, you know, Bridget McKenzie from the Nationals has said this was a breach of the coalition arrangements that they've made about cabinet positions because essentially one of their cabinet positions was taken back. Barnaby Joyce, who was the leader at the time of the Nationals, essentially on Insiders, well, it was a memorable and in not great ways performance because he was essentially saying, look, I'm a political realist and I knew that if I kicked up a stink about this, it was possible, highly possible, that the Prime Minister would just take that portfolio off us, that he would take back the extra portfolio I had negotiated yeah. and say, no worries. I mean, that's a, a kind of huge admission to to make, to say, you know, this is the political reality, this is what was going on, and this was my unspoken understanding between leaders.
1: Yeah, and, and this this sort of secret arrangement that they have, the coalition agreement being one that's not available to anyone to read, that somehow that's more important than upholding something as simple as, you know, the Westminster system, mm. uh, that that they could turn a blind eye to these things. I mean, the idea that this is a, a apparently nominally conservative government is just laughable in this situation. They were doing these things in cahoots, you know, and with the Governor-General, without telling Parliament. I mean, this is... I know that, you know, we could talk about the Governor-General... I mean, I think we should talk about the yeah, Governor-General's role in will, all this. Yeah. Because... This situation is one in which the entire elected parliament is unaware of what the Prime Minister is doing with particular portfolios, with Barnaby Joyce, in his full knowledge, and making decisions in the, in the national interest. The idea that, you know, that a secret coalition agreement, which the rest of us can't even read, is somehow at the core of why they didn't tell us, you know, yeah, it's, it's disgraceful.
0: I'm speaking with Nick Fyke, former editor of The Monthly, and we're discussing federal politics. Let's talk about this argument about legality and also then obviously that ties into the Governor-General and what happened here because the refrain from liberal ministers, the, the leader of the opposition, even John Howard, anyone who's kind of defending this position is saying, well, it was actually legal. Now, I don't think the people when federation was happening and people were writing the constitution, I don't think they thought, oh, we better make sure we put in a clause there about this specific situation so that the prime minister doesn't grab hold of multiple portfolios and we don't find out about it. The fact that it may not be technically illegal, it doesn't really mean anything, does it?
1: No, it doesn't, because the Constitution itself says very, very little about how the Governor-General interacts with the Prime Minister over specifically about ministerial responsibility. It really does not have a lot to say, as in the system, the Westminster system has been built up as a series of conventions uh, that are to be respected, and one of those is the Ministerial Code of Conduct and you've got this Cabinet Code of Conduct. So there are certain conventions that governments have followed, you know, since since the start, and while there are systems in which you can temporarily cover ministers, as in there's instruments for acting ministers when they're temporarily covering incapacitated ministers, and, you know, those sorts of things, they're absolutely... The legalities are a red herring in this case. What this is about is a Governor-General who is supposedly the custodian of our political system as we understand it, and ministerial powers, which are written down by the prime minister of the day. And you have a system that rests on a ministerial sort of cabinet system, which reports to parliament. So you have a minister who's responsible for a portfolio that the public knows that the buck stops with the minister in each portfolio, and they're responsible to the parliament and to the cabinet. Now, these things are all conventions that are all, all understood. They're not legalities in the sense that, you know, you have a law that says the minister, there must be one minister and he must report that. No, it's, mm. it's not like that. Uh, so, you know, we're still having various complex discussions with constitutional legal experts and, and stuff like that. But essentially, the Governor-General is the custodian of the Westminster system, as we understand it. In this case, I would argue he's failed badly. He didn't inform the public. He didn't follow up after granting these massive powers. His argument has been, well, I wasn't obliged. I didn't realise that they were gonna keep it secret. I wasn't obliged to do this thing. I have to follow the instructions of the prime minister of the day. All those things are true, but he's also obliged to stand up for the system on our behalf and perform basic due diligence. He presided over a system in which Parliament itself didn't realise, was never told, so it's an act of, it's, it's, it's an act of omission. It's, it's, uh, it's deception by omission, not, not an active one. Although even on that question, you know, <laughs> legislatively, the governor general is supposed to keep a diary of all of his official activities that is legislated in this case on these five occasions there are no diary entries about what he was doing so not only did he not keep his diary but he didn't he didn't check whether these ministerial changes were gazetted as in they would say that it was the prime minister's office that was supposed to do that still They never did their due diligence. They never checked these things. So the whole thing is him presiding over a situation in which the Prime Minister is appointing himself to ministers. Parliament doesn't know about it. All these secret powers have have accrued with the Prime Minister and the Governor-General has gone along with it.
0: The Governor-General gave two statements last week. One of the lines which you've referenced there, I'll read it out, verbatim was the Governor-General had no reason to believe that appointments would not be communicated. I agree with you in the sense that I find it very hard to believe that because any kind of sound person, someone who is educated on politics, who follows it closely, who knows about how government works, would know that if these five appointments had been made, there would be public questions. People would ask, and the parliament would absolutely be pursuing this, saying, who is responsible? How do I conduct my Senate estimates hearings with the relevant minister if there are two different ministers? There are so many questions that would have come out and arisen that it's hard to believe the statement that he had no reason to believe they would not be communicated because he would have realised over a period of months that they had not been because there hadn't been that huge reaction from his colleagues, the parliament, the general public. I don't know. I just yeah. wonder isn't that something that's pretty obvious? I know I'm stating the obvious here, but no, yeah. it doesn't seem to be addressed.
1: I completely agree. And and I think, you know, there's no point talking about the legalities of the situ of the position of the Governor General when he's completely ignoring all of the conventions that that hold our government together. I mean, yeah, no, I I, I I'm just astonished that um, that he sort of got off this lightly at this point. It seems that the government, that the Albanese government is so desperate to sort of pin this on on Morrison and, and the Liberal Party that they're sort of going for him first and they're sort of trying not to pin anything on the governor general and you know that's their sort of political instincts but to me it's just it's not good enough to just sort of say oh i think he didn't need to it wasn't his responsibility what the hell is the governor general's responsibility if it's not upholding the standards of the westminster system i mean this is the worst breach of this system of protocol since 1975 so what um you know yeah, it's kind of indefensible Mm. for me. I mean, I'll give you like one really specific example of how the government, you know, it was hard to, it's hard to hold the government to account when you don't know who's making the decisions. So in April and May 2021, the Governor General is appointing Morrison as the Industry, Science, Energy and Resources Minister. He's appointing him to Home Affairs and Treasury. This is in both, all of these are in April 21 and May 2021. And at the same time, April and May 2021, this organisation called the Governor-General's Future Leaders Fund gets a grant of $18 million, which is rushed through. So their deductible gift recipient status, which is what you need to get as a charity, you know, tax deductible status. It normally takes two years to do. Normally you need this, you know, it it takes rounds of paperwork. You need annual reports. You know, anyone in the charity sector knows how hard these things are to get. This organisation gets its one rushed through in those same months, despite having no office, no staff, they had no annual report, and somehow they're ending up with a grant of $18 million in the May 2021 budget. So when this comes up at Senate estimates a few months later, and people are asking the finance minister, Senator Birmingham, what was the go with that? He there going, well, we were following official processes. Well, there was another minister. And the other minister was Scott Morrison. And Scott Morrison is talking with the governor general who's representing this charity, which is getting $18 million of taxpayers money and suddenly the person who's fronting up at Senate Estimates to answer questions about it is actually Simon Birmingham, who probably had nothing to do with it. It sort of um, sort of stinks to me.
0: In every kind of way. I mean, it, <laughs> it stinks for the, the senators who were asking the questions and had no idea what was really happening, for the public servants, those who didn't know, for the minister who didn't know obviously, and then what happened, whether the processes were followed, whether it was fair and just like all the other processes that every other charity has to go through. and You've made excellent points there. Nick, I've just seen that the Prime Minister is going to be holding a press conference at 10 past 12. So there he's going to provide the Solicitor General's advice. The Labor Cabinet will have met this morning to obviously look at that. But we have heard some kind of leaks from senior figures to say that this report is going to be, quote unquote, scathing. I just wanted to talk about looking forward, what essentially should happen? You know, should we be having an inquiry? Should the former Prime Minister step down, etc, cetera, etc.? Cetera.
1: Yeah, well, look, there's definitely going to be some sort of government or parliamentary inquiry into Morrison's actions. I mean, I think the Greens want it to be broader than just Morrison's actions. They want it to incorporate the role of the Governor-General and Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, Phil Gations, et etc., and the, the Morrison's own staff. So we, we're not clear on that yet. But um, if if the report today is as scathing as uh, Samantha Maiden said it, it was someone had obviously leaked to her that it didn't look good, then, you know, the pressure will be on to make it much more about just Morrison's actions. I think this story is going to run and run and run because every decision that has gone through these departments is suddenly under a cloud and we're looking at, you know, between one and two years' worth of decisions across five portfolios. Uh, We still have no idea what the Governor-General was thinking or doing. Yeah, I'll
0: just jump in because um, Samantha Maidens tweeted the Solicitor-General's advice for one of the portfolios. So I'll just add in there what's happened, which is to say, he says, yes, the Governor-General acting on the advice of the Prime Minister has power under Section 64 of the Constitution to appoint an existing Minister of State, including Prime Minister, to administer an additional Department of State, and that the Governor-General has no discretion to refuse to accept the Prime Minister's advice in relation to such an appointment." It goes on and on. There's like 29 yeah. pages for, of this. And this is for the Department of Industry, Science, Energy and Resources. So it doesn't tell us anything we didn't expect. Obviously, no. that is what we thought would happen. But I just wanted to let everyone know.
1: Yeah, yeah. Look, I, I, th- I likewise, I think, you know, we, we talked about it. it's not the legalities of this issue that are the, the point. It's mm. the point. It's the fact that over multiple occasions, these actions were done in contravention of the understood conventions that no one said anything. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't. Um, I don't. If, of course, you're able to. I mean, those instruments were designed to temporarily cover over, to act as ministers. They weren't to take over multiple portfolios at once indefinitely. I mean, yeah. this is a, a different. It's a, the scale is different we're not going to find that uh, either the Prime Ministers and possibly even the Governor-General's actions were actually illegal. But, you know, I think that's that's not what the system is. As in, Morrison can also stay in Parliament for as long as he wants because he's been elected by the people of Cook. So, you know, he it's up to him what happens. The amazing thing is when you look at Australian politics, you know, as closely as as I've looked at over the past, you know, 15 years, you realise that you can't actually make politicians do much at all. Mm. Uh, Ministers are are bound by codes that are enforced by the Prime Minister, as in if the Prime Minister, like as Morrison did, decides to do nothing, there's not much anyone can do. You can't kick an MP out of Parliament. They only get kicked out if they're guilty of... uh, a crime that carries, a, you know, the punishment of a jail, a year's jail or more. So there's all these things, you know, the whole system, yeah. it's an honour system. It yeah. always has been. And if you uh, just decide to ignore that honour system, you can kind of get away with a lot, which is mm. exactly what's happened here.
0: We'll we'll have to wrap it up there, Nick, but thank you so much for joining me today. It's been absolutely fabulous talking to you. I mean, from a politically nerdy perspective, very exciting, but also really disappointing and annoying that we even have to talk about something like this and obviously the undermining of democracy and trust in our institutions. So a big thank you to you for joining me today. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast.